Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. She didn't say no enough, okay? And the problem it was then causing was that nothing was getting done uh, because everybody was asking her to do things. And I kept saying to her, look, you've got to just say no a lot more because by saying yes to everybody, you think you're trying to do the right thing, but nothing's getting done. That's a really great question. Was it better than Colin's last question? Because I'm keeping yeah. <laughs> The answer is no. No, very well played, Colin. Very well played. But a personal policy has legs. A personal policy essentially is like, this is my stance on the matter. Now, five years later or 20 years later, this is how I feel about money. End of story. Colin, we have a guest today. My colleague, Vanessa Patrick, is here. Hi, Vanessa. Hi. Vanessa is a very prolific researcher in the, the consumer behavior marketing research side. She's done a, a bunch of work on aesthetics and how it intersects with branding and how it intersects with package design and all kinds of very interesting things. Uh, she's also dabbled a little bit in research that kind of butts up, I hope I don't offend you in saying this, Vanessa, that kind of butts up against what, what might be considered kind of almost self-help or kind of self-definitional which is distinctly non-scientific, a lot of it. And she's like actually taking a scientific approach in what she does and helping people kind of define, I don't know, who they are and, and how they can live better lives. And she, when she told me that she's written a book recently, I invited her onto the podcast to tell us about it. So she's going to tell us about her, her new book, which is called The Power of Saying No. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you. Welcome, Vanessa. It's good to have you on the on the show. And it's um, when Ryan said that um, you'd written this book, I thought it was a really interesting topic. So uh, looking forward to having a chat with you. Yeah, maybe we could start there. Why no, Vanessa? What, what motivated you to write a book about saying no? So as you said, a lot of my research deals with the area of self-regulation or self-control. But you're right in the sense that it takes a kind of more self-helpy angle because unlike the research on self-control, which is all about deprivation and all about restraint, my research is really about embracing the pleasure of consumption, but putting boundaries or constraints that are self-definitional that actually help you make decisions that align with your identity and therefore are much more pleasurable and, and give you much more happiness. So I call this kind of way of thinking about it compassionate self-control. So it is self-control that is much more driven by your own needs and by looking inwards instead of looking outwards for cues as to how to behave. So not like the, the boot camp approach to self-control, but more of a, almost a therapeutic approach. Right. And 
And I've written several papers that, that look at self-control in a much more positive light, more as self-discipline, much more as reflection of the values that you have, as opposed to these hard and fast kind of constraints. And one of the things I like to talk about in the book is this notion about personal policies, which are rules that we set up for ourselves that help guide our decisions. A lot of people think about putting up rules as boundaries, as, you know, these barbed wires that protect you. Whereas I think about personal policies more as these red velvet ropes that you can decorate your life with that are soft and pretty, and you set them up to shape your decisions and your choices the way you want them to. The red velvet ropes are generally to keep out riffraff. So uh, <laughs> I, I also like that. <laughs> when I heard, when Ryan talked to us, about this, it immediately made me think of in the business world of where people don't say no enough, particularly to their to their boss. Absolutely. So again, I'm 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 the balance that Ryan and I always attempt to portray is me coming from the practical world of going, well, okay, so in this case, how do I deal with my boss? How do I turn around and say no to my to my boss and Ryan coming at this from the sort of that more sort of academic side. But can you sort of put it into that context for a bit for me? Absolutely. In fact, I think that that is a key context because the while I did all this work on empowered refusal, I translated it to practice by teaching executives over the last few years about practical ways to deal with this issue. So research essentially shows that, yes, we have a huge problem saying no. Women have a significantly higher problem saying no than men do. Women are much more likely to say yes to things that come their way that are not aligned with what they want. And it is essentially a problem because when you say yes to something that is not aligned to the work, your core work or the things that you care to do, you land up not having the time to do the things that are important to you. So there is that trade-off that people struggle with on a regular basis. Now, with my work, I essentially come up with these the set of three competencies that help you navigate this trade-off. I call them the art, A-R-T, of empowered refusal. So let me back up and just define the concept of empowered refusal. So empowered refusal is the super skill of saying no in a way that is persuasive and does not invite pushback from others. And the three competencies that I identify, the A-R-T, are awareness, rules, not decisions, and totality of self. And when you master these three sets of competencies, you become better at the super skill of saying no, whether it is to your boss or to your mother-in-law, who happen to be the two most difficult people to say no to, apparently, and to the host of people who are acquaintances, that you know we tend to struggle with saying no because we care about our reputation, what people think of us and our relationships with others. We want friends and they want, we want them to like us. And we think by saying yes, we maintain a reputation and secure those relationships. But in fact, that may not always be the case. And you drop the ball, backfire. That was going to be my question. Are people right about that in thinking that you need to say yes to maintain those relationships and your reputation? Absolutely not. In fact, I have I have run, run studies which show that you very often say yes when you want to say no, 
And that only leads you to feel resentful of the other person and also may even like be likely to have you drop the ball on important things and lead you to have a drop in reputation as opposed to enhance your reputation. Mm -hmm. More importantly, the data also shows that we think we are going to feel really guilty saying no. But in fact, we feel we don't feel that guilty saying no once we've actually said no. But we do feel much more negative emotions saying yes when we wanted to say no. I'm thinking um, I was uh, chatting to Lorraine, my wife, actually, before the show. And I, I recall a instance where I had uh, one of the team. And one of the problems that the, this particular team member had was, in my view, she didn't say no enough. Okay. And the problem it was then causing was that nothing was getting done. Yes. Uh, because everybody was asking her to do things. And I kept saying to her, look, you've got to just say no a lot more. Because by saying yes to everybody, you think you're trying to do the right thing, but nothing's getting done. What about in that instance then? How did, I, because again, I'm sure our listeners will be listening to this and going, yeah, my boss keeps asking me to do 50 million things. And I can't do everything. So how do I go about saying no to my boss without my boss turning around and going, actually, this they're just lazy or, you know, they don't understand the importance of all these things or something like that. Right. So there are definitely strategies associated with dealing with your boss. But I think the first mindset that we need to adopt is that when you say yes, when you want to say no, or when your plate is full, you are being a pushover and not a professional. It's really important to adopt a professional mindset and have a realistic view about what is, what is possible to get done. The way to look at this is to really look inwards and to determine what is possible, what draws on your strengths, and to have that communication with your boss. In the economy that we live in right now, we are knowledge workers. We are expected to bring our best selves to work. And by taking on too much, the garbage just piles up and you land up not being able to see what you need to really get done and land up doing all these different things. In fact, research shows that we women are more likely to take on non-promotable work, which is all the stuff that has nothing to do with their job, bringing coffee to the meetings, picking up the donuts, organizing the retirement parties, cleaning up the refrigerator in, in, in the break room. Now, these are things that women naturally take on. They have no intrinsic reward. And so the solution is not to take those on, but to figure out ways to kind of make everyone take a turn to do these things. In fact, research shows that women are not only more likely to be asked to take on with these non-promotable tasks, but are also more likely to say yes to non-promotable tasks. So one of the things I do in the book is identify kind of a, a way in which you can categorize the asks. So I think the first thing you need to do is to develop that self-awareness, to know where your purpose lies, where the opportunity costs are, what are the trade-offs you're willing to make. And then every time an ask, a request, a favor comes your way, you kind of use a particular lens 
in which you evaluate the benefits and the costs. So I call these different asks, you know, like a pass the salt ask. Pass the salt ask is a salt, uh, an ask where you don't have to invest much energy, but the other person gains immensely. And it's a pass the salt ask. Someone, someone asks for the salt shaker and you just pass it. It's easy. You should say yes to those things. And Ryan might know these kind of things are things like recommendation letters that you write for students. For them, it's a matter of getting a job or not, it's a, or getting into a university, into an MBA program or not. It's a huge deal for them. It's a much smaller deal for me to do. So it's a yes for those kind of asks. But there are other asks where the benefit to the other person is unclear and the cost to you is super high. It makes very, I call them bake your famous lasagna asks, which is like <laughs> these huge complicated things that, that you would have to invest a ton of energy in and it makes no difference because it's just one more dish on the table. You know, I think learning to be able to sift and categorize the asks as they come in and to have those very strong responses, this is a hell yes and this is a hell no, is super important to be able to prioritize how you approach things and how you account for your time. That's great. Can we circle back to, uh, you mentioned very briefly your ART framework. Yes. Uh, can you real briefly just kind of go through each of those in turn? So the first one was awareness. ART of empowered refusal, which is the first one is awareness. So the ability to look inwards, identify your priorities, your preferences, your beliefs, and what you care about, so that you can use that lens to be able to sift through the different asks. R is rules, not decisions. So I come up with this concept of personal policies, like I mentioned earlier. And personal policies are these simple rules that we make that are based on our values and priorities and that reflect those values and priorities and how we operate. And so when we have these rules in place, we have an infrastructure that allows us a platform by which you can say no. If you say, I have a policy not to do this, or have a rule not to do that, people respond to that and respect that. Because people do respect when you speak from your identity. And you don't get pushback. And we've actually published research on that in, the, in, in IJRM, which is the International Journal of Research and Marketing. And the final one is totality of self. So I talk a lot about the importance of using powerful language or standing upwards, words that come from a place of empowerment. But if your standing up words are accompanied by very weak body language, then you can leak power and you essentially do not have the power by which to uh, support the words. And so totality of self is bringing your whole self, your body language, the way you speak, all the nonverbal cues to come across as confident. And that is something that stems a lot from your, when you have those personal policies in place. When you speak from your identity, you are more likely to come across as somebody who's confident and knows what they want. I like that. I think from, from my perspective, that advice spans the internal focus. So you need to be aware of, of what you want. And then I think rules could, could go both ways. So Absolutely. by having a rule in place, I don't need to think about it each time because I've already essentially made the decision. 
but also it communicates to other people. Now it communicates to the asker that I have this policy or this rule. And then finally, you know, the totality is, seems to be a lot about communication. I assume that that could also reflect back on the self, but a lot of it's about communicating it very clearly. And it's about both you and them, if you want to make this work out. Absolutely. So the personal policies, I actually develop a framework that I call the dream framework to establish personal policies. Essentially, the personal policies can take two forms. They can be in the form of self-talk. So rules that you set up that you set up for yourself. So for example, you know, morning rituals, How what do you do when you get up? This is stuff that you have to manage and you have to deal with. But then you can also have announcements. Announcements are the, are the personal policies that you share with others so they know what your preferences are and where you prefer to, how you prefer to operate. And so I've spoken to many, many successful leaders in organizations, and a lot of them do set up these personal policies, not only for themselves, but they also communicate them to others. So for example, there's a banker who's in charge of you know this huge multi-million dollar organization. And for her, she sets eight to nine in the morning to kind of just get a good sense of the business and the decisions she has to make. And that's a personal decision. So she needs the self-discipline to be able to get to her desk and carve that time out to do this important work. But she also has to communicate to other people not to set up meetings at that time. Those are her rules. And I think when we set up these rules, they almost liberate us to be able to live the life according to on our own terms, which is very much a very, very central aspect of my book. Ryan, we've reached a new milestone, mate. What is that? I now have 70,000 people signed up for my LinkedIn newsletter called Why Customers Buy. 70,000, that's very impressive, Colin. That just so happens to be slightly more than the capacity of the first energy stadium where the Cleveland Browns play in Cleveland, Ohio. I've got to tell you, mate, that doesn't surprise me. My milestone doesn't seem as good now you mention Cleveland Browns. <laughs> uh, hey, beating the Cleveland Browns is still an accomplishment. It still is. <laughs> it would be for my five-year-old, but not for most football teams. <laughs> anyway. If you'd like to sign up for my newsletter, go onto LinkedIn and search for Why Customers Buy, or just go to my profile, Colin Shaw, and sign up for a free LinkedIn newsletter. So what about when you're then dealing with customers? I can think of when we used to be in the business to business world, or when I was dealing in the business-to-business -business world um, for a bit large corporate, and a customer would be asking you something, okay? I guess that feels a little different. H how do you communicate those things then to, from a, from a customer perspective? That's a great question, actually. And I address that in the book in this way. I essentially say that there are parameters to your job. And if you are in that job, you have implicitly agreed to those parameters. If you have agreed, for example, to deal with customer calls 24-7, that is something you have established as a parameter of your job. If you did not want to do that, then maybe this is not the right job for you. But 
if those are not the parameters of your job, if they are not part of the job description and you still engage in them, then you need to kind of pull back a little bit and reflect as to whether there are alternative options. So many people in my classes, for example, have talked about the fact that they have carved out time, say between six and eight is dinner time. It's time for family. And so I don't take work uh, calls during that time. And as soon as you establish those personal policies, tell yourself that I don't take calls between six and eight, and everyone on your team knows you don't take calls between six and eight, they will not call you. You will not receive calls between six and eight because you've established those preferences and you've communicated them to others. Sure. And I guess at the end of the day, depending upon the customer and stuff like that, there's no reason why you couldn't tell your customer that as well. Absolutely. So let me go back to kind of where we started, which was self-regulation. And um, this might be a little esoteric of a question, but from a self-regulation standpoint, from a self-control standpoint, do you think it's more important to learn how to say no to yourself or to other people? Or is it both? That's a really great question. Was it better than Colin's last question? Because I'm keeping yeah. track. <laughs> the answer is no. No, very well played, Colin. Very well played. The first paper I published on empowered refusal is really about self-talk. And the idea came from looking at consumers struggling with managing their own self-regulation in the context of food. So essentially, like, let's say you're at a Weight Watchers meeting, a large bit of the conversation is about the struggle with how to say no to the food that's in front of you. How do I go for a party and not eat? How do I get myself to move from my desk and actually go to the gym or go to the walk, go for a walk? And given my interest in self-regulation, I would say you need to manage yourself first before you can, should manage others. So my starting point is always deal with yourself first. If you can cr develop a mastery of yourself and you can use self-talk, set up personal policies, then it naturally spills over to other people. It's, it's really impossible to create all these announcements for other people, but then be completely right. you know, loose with yourself in terms of self-discipline. So I would say to answer your question, start with yourself first. If you can master that, much more easy to deal with others. Great answer. And, and is there something then about the way that you do that? So let me explain where I'm, I'm coming from. So one of the things that I've learned over the last couple of years is, and when you talk about weight loss, okay, uh, because I've lost a lot of weight recently. And one of the things that I was being taught about was, A, the emotions attached to that, okay, to, to the act of doing whatever you're doing, okay, uh, in my case, eating, and the the way that you then talk to yourself. So in other words, actually try not to say no because it feels like you're in a constant fight with yourself. Does, does that make sense? Now, I don't know if this is, I guess I'm sort of looking to you from a more scientific perspective, but it was like saying, well, don't, don't say no, Colin, you can't have that. Say, and this is one of the things I particularly like, is actually say, I could have that tomorrow. Right. So it's not saying, it's a subtle difference, but it's not saying, no, don't eat that, Colin, slap over the wrist, you silly boy, why were you thinking of that? It was, you could have that, 
but maybe you should have it a bit later on as opposed to having it now. I'm super excited you gave me that example because I actually published a paper with my colleague Nicole Mead on the topic of strategic procrastination, which is essentially this idea of compassionate self-control in the context of instead of saying no to yourself and depriving yourself and giving yourself a slap on the wrist, tell yourself, sure, you can have it, but tomorrow. And what we show is by strategically procrastinating your decision, you don't make a decision in the heat of the moment. And, and you actually, when the time comes, you may not even want that thing because you reflect back and say, well, maybe I didn't want it. And so we show that deprivation definitely backfires because when we tell ourselves we can't do something, we actually feel more, like we really, really want it more. So it builds up the desire for it. If we tell ourselves, no, you can't have it, it hurts. But when we say, sure, you can have it, just not right now, you kind of let the desire for it naturally wane. And then you're not you're less likely to have it. So instead of giving in the moment, tell yourself, sure, but not now. The danger is, is you turn around and go, I can't care less what the rules are. I'm just going to go and eat this bar of chocolate because those are bloody stupid rules. I know they're my rules. But those are bloody stupid rules anyway. And, yes. you know, you, you act up like a typical teenager, basically, even though you're somewhat older than a teenager. <laughs> I think the other point you made, which is super important, is the importance and power of language. And so I spend a lot of time in the book talking about how we talk to ourselves. We talk to ourselves more than anyone else talks to us. And the way we talk to ourselves really matters. So I've been really, really interested in this notion of self-talk and how we frame our self-talk to, be, to empower ourselves, to bring out the best in ourselves rather than diminish ourselves. So for example... The paper on empowered refusal looks at two different phrases. Most people, when they are faced with a temptation, say, oh, no, I can't eat, eat that chocolate cake, or I can't take a holiday, or I can't leave for vacation. And that signals deprivation to yourself. But if you actually invoke a personal role and you think about why that can't, why you, you don't want to do this, and then you make it a personal policy and reframe that I can't to I don't, it changes the way you come across not only to yourself, but also to others. So if you tell someone, I don't eat chocolate cake, or I don't take the elevator when I can take the stairs, or I don't miss out on an opportunity to talk about my book, it comes across as much more empowered, much more driven by the self. Yes, yes. No, and I so agree that language you. is super important. Yes. And actually thinking about it, what it it also does is it it changes the way that somebody responds to you as well. Absolutely. In my experience, by saying I can't, because if you say I can't, you get pushed Then people go, yeah, they go, oh, go on, have have a bit. You know, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. So, you know, it's it's their birthday or whatever else. But if you say I don't or you have a rule or policy, it's actually quite interesting actually thinking about it. Glad we're having this conversation. Is because it's quite surprising. I get a lot of phone calls at work, at Beyond Philosophy, with people saying, we would like you to come and speak at our event, but we want you to pay, me to pay, to speak at their event. And I go, I'm not doing that. You pay me to come and speak at your <laughs> event, not me the other way around. And what I've learned over the years is to say, 
we have a policy that says that we shouldn't do that. And as soon as you say we have a policy, they don't argue with you anymore. Absolutely. <laughs> it's strange. amazing. Yeah. It's amazing how that, that really works because essentially you're communicating a rule that you've established and people don't push back against those rules. I'm just surprised how people don't push back. <laughs> to be totally no, and, and, and you raise the issue of money, and money is often a very big deal. In fact, I ran a study where we talked about how do you say no to someone who's asking you for a loan. And essentially, most people, they, their natural tendency is to come up with an excuse. So let's say everyone wants to say no. But some people, we gave them an excuse. So we said, them, well, you know, ex well, I'm saving up for going to college. I mean, there are a whole bunch of excuses as to why you can't give people money. Versus develop a personal policy. You know, I have a rule about not giving money, not, not loaning money for whatever reason, you know. What I found in the data is that both work effectively in the short run in shooing the other person away. The difference, however, is five years later, when that person thinks about asking you for money, no longer that excuse matters. So the excuse has gone away. So they will come back and ask you. But a personal policy has legs. A personal policy essentially is like, this is my stance on the matter. Now, five years later or 20 years later, this is how I feel about money. I've got to tell you, it's worked with Ryan and me. I mean, every time he asks me for money, I, I, I say no, mate. <laughs> And I tell him, I have a personal policy of asking for money every time we talk. So, <laughs> Intractable problem. That's right. Rocking a hard place. That's so interesting. I had never thought of it in those terms until you, you put it that way. But it essentially changes the locus of control, which is a, a psycho psychology idea about kind of whether you are a victim of the universe or whether you have a say in what's happening to you. And so if you say, I can't, that's an external force, right? Like, oh, I, I also wish that I could do this thing, but there's some external force. And that's why you get people who will then try to align with you. Like, oh, yeah, of course you can. Like, we're on the same side here, pushing back against this external constraint. As opposed to if you say, I won't, I have this personal policy, you are the one who's created that barrier. It is your choice. And now if somebody wants to get around that, they need to push against you directly. And I think that that then is uncomfortable for them. I think that's, that's an amazing insight. It's a really cool way of phrasing that. And it really works for people. I mean, I think, I think that people, when, when you wrap your head around it and just start becoming much more mindful in the way you approach things. So my number one rule is never say yes right away to anything. You should always think about whether this is something to say worth saying yes to, what are the trade-offs, and how you can phrase your refusal in a way that is empowered. So we need to learn to practice that. And even me, who's written the book, needs to, to pause and think about what's the best way to deal with it, as opposed to just that gut response. There's research that shows that regardless of, uh, there's a linguist who's actually in um, Australia, I believe. He has done some research that looks at the speed with which people respond to yeses and nos. It turns out that we are so quick to say yes, regardless of culture. We are so socialized to just be so cooperative and want to just agree that uh, the speed with which we respond with a yes is faster than the speed with which we respond to the no.
we need to learn to kind of just hold ourselves back train ourselves not to kind of jump to that default response but really reflect as to whether this is a good choice for us so the people listening to this i'm sure will be enjoying it as much as uh, ryan and i but what would be the practical things then so we've we've talked a lot about sort of theory but if people are going okay i'm going to take this away i'm going to do something with this today what is your recommendation of what i do there are several things to do one is let's say that you want to choose the domain in which you want to begin so let's say you are struggling with self regulation so then you want to think about like how do i start saying no to myself or maybe you want to start saying no to other people so start with the domain where what where do you want the most change and then start reflecting about why you want that change and what are the values that you want to see come up in your life what are what are the things that you want to see that you are not seeing right now and then develop personal policies around them develop the self awareness i also bring up a really interesting concept which i think is really interesting which is how to say no to people who won't say no who won't take no for an answer and so you can practice empowered refusal but there are some people who just will not take no for an answer can I you just bear with me lorraine can you come in and listen to this <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> i call these people lorraine walnut trees walnut trees are essentially these beautiful luxuriant trees uh, but what they do is that they exude a herbicide called juglone into the soil and they pretty much destroy all other plants around it so they have this luxuriant luxurious canopy but everyone else is every other plant is decimated and so i use instead of calling these people you know assholes or terrible people i essentially call them walnut trees which is much more nicer way of saying them you know i point out walnut tree walnut tree walnut tree but the thing about walnut trees is to and the thing about saying no is to identify like what are the situations in which you find yourself in traps so throughout the book i identify these traps but with the walnut tree there are specific strategies that walnut trees use so for example walnut trees will always seek a home court advantage they will always put you in a corner but in a way where they have some certain power over you they might call you to their office they might inv- invite you to lunch where they are paying so they have like this power dynamic that they've established the second thing is they will always ask you face to face because we are 34% more like 34 times more likely 34 times not percentage times more likely to say yes to a face to face request than not so if you are vulnerable to the shade of a walnut tree you need to avoid the face to face so these are the kind of things that we need to learn the other thing walnut trees will do is they push you to make a choice now and you need to push back and take your time to make that choice preferably in a separate location later so these are the kind of strategies i think what i want to do with the book is create these really realistic scenarios and very very concrete things that you can do that you develop these competencies and then are able to navigate these difficult situations for the listener again what's the we'll obviously going to put a link in the show notes for the for the book but perhaps you can tell us the title again 
Yes, it's called The Power of Saying No, The New Science of How to Say No to Take Charge of Your Life. Great. And we'll put a link in the show notes. And if people want to get hold of you, then how do they how do they do that, Vanessa? Email and LinkedIn. All right. Well, again, we will put a we'll put a link in the in the show notes uh, going forward. Ryan, was there any other last question you wanted to ask, or are we? Uh, no, just just an observation. Um, I mean, until I had uh, read the book and and had this discussion, you don't appreciate kind of the difficulty of saying no there's just so much cultural and maybe even subcultural like just biological maybe there's so many pushes towards saying yes the necessity of kind of developing strategies and tactics for being able to effectively say no while maintaining relationships and all the other things is not something that i would have necessarily considered or, or thought there was a need for I'm convinced that there is. Like, I think this is just a really valuable skill to have at any level of your career. Um, and so, yeah, recommending the book. I appreciate that. No, that's it's great. And um, if you don't mind, I will be citing you in my divorce um, with Lorraine. <laughs> so. <laughs> I never thought I mean, of that as an outcome of writing this book. Citing this podcast <laughs> happened because of this podcast. So, <laughs> there's advantages and disadvantages both ways, I suppose. So, anyway, thanks very much for coming on the show. Much appreciated. And um, we hope people will say yes to listening to the podcast next week. I hope so Cheers. too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks very much for listening to the show today. We really hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, it would be really great if you could leave us a review. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. Intuitive Customer.